everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Benjamin Franson. How you doing? Pretty good. Glad to finally be here. Yeah. Um, so really interested to kind of hear your story of uh, incarceration and then exoneration. Sure. Thank you. Um, the exoneration part is still in progress, but we did at least have the state formally recognize that they had everything wrong, that I, in fact, was not guilty of murder or these various other things that they tried throughout my three separate trials. My case was overturned twice on appeal. And I had three different trials, four years apart, and they changed theories every time. And it wasn't until in 2021, I was technically let go by the parole board, although my appeals were all still active. They've ironed that out now. I'm no longer on parole or any of that. But I guess one of the media-worthy bites about the story is that I transferred essentially from prison to UCLA. Kind of walk me through how this all started. Sure. It began in 2013. I was called over to a friend's house. It wasn't even much of a friend. I'd only met him at nightclubs. It was the first time I'd ever been to his house. And he said he had been burglarized. So I went over to his house and the burglars had come back he and someone else caught the burglars breaking into his house i thought the burglary was over and when i walked in the burglary was actually happening then and a fight broke out one of the burglars rushed at me i threw up a kind of a spastic reflexive elbow this just knocked the wind out of the guy and my co-defendant killed both people now, it was his house, and so the house was, it was extremely complicated because of the burglary and because of the obvious mitigating circumstances and things, but everyone involved was very afraid of my co-defendant, who is still in prison, and he told me that I had to testify against him, but they were going to act like they thought I had done it the entire time. I was afraid to testify against someone who had done something like that. And I separated my trials. So I had a separate trial so I could explain what happened to a jury. Whereas he had his own trial. He was sentenced to life without possibility of parole times two. 
and he's still serving out that sentence. Are they claiming that this was felony murder on your part? Yes. The interesting thing, the one that the most lawyers have come to talk to me about is the theory in the third trial of something called second degree felony murder. And an interesting Google is if you Google, does second degree felony murder exist in California? It says no. Senate bill 1430, I think it's 1437, threw it out. And it cites my case as the proof that there's no more, even though that was the charge that I ended up with at the end of the last trial. And what was the last trial? uh, I was sentenced the last time in 2017. Okay. But I was finally given a federal appeal, and it's before Judge McDermott in the U.S. District Court now. They essentially admitted that they had it wrong, kind of shuffled me out the back door through parole, and I'm no longer on parole anymore because I've been doing my best. UCLA is a bit of a challenge because I have a lot of other things going on. But so far, I only have one B. Um, And what did they originally charge you with then? I was originally arrested by the FBI for kidnapping. But that was essentially that they didn't know specifically what had happened. And they were sort of clutching at straws because they they just tried to look at cross state lines. One of the people had ties to Las Vegas. And so they tried to make literally for once a federal case out of it and could not. Then they dismissed it. The state picked it up and refiled. So my first trial was in 2005. I was convicted and sentenced to two counts of first degree murder with no self-defense instructions or anything of any kind. The appellate court on direct appeal very quickly overturned it. And I was given a new trial. I was, sadly, I lost my grandparents right after that, but they left me their house. So I was able to sell the house to pay for real attorneys for my second trial. I was convicted of involuntary manslaughter and second degree murder. And then that case was overturned also a few years later on appeal because the judge kept he kept committing instructional error. Same judge too. It's unusual to get any case overturned on appeal. Mine was overturned twice in the same judge's court four years apart. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. But yeah. why why the why the prosecution focus on on you? It seemed like it would have been a self defense situation with uh, a residential burglary. Yeah, they. Uh, it was a very bizarre situation because, I mean, legally, because the DA said that they would, they offered a deal very early on if I would testify against him, and they thought it was some sort of misplaced loyalty, but I was actually just afraid of him for the sake of my family and other people. And it, it's easy to say that, well, the right thing is to do is to immediately alert the authorities and go to trial, but when you are fully aware that someone just killed two people for breaking into a house, that's not really the guy you're super excited about crossing in a very public fashion. So I was afraid. And 
I didn't testify against him. And they flat out told me, although not on the record, that because I didn't testify against him, they were going to try to give me the same thing they gave him, even though they knew it wasn't me. And and so this guy acted improperly. It wasn't actual self-defense is what you're telling me. Right. Well, I mean, he already what, – what's interesting is that, like, this is not one of those, you know, DA exonerating 100% innocent things because – with time and, you know, some research in the law, I discovered that there's a weird little gray area there. If someone breaks into your house and you, you know, catch them on your couch and then call the police immediately, then you've made a citizen's arrest. If someone's in your house, you catch them and they're on the couch and you spend 15 minutes trying to figure out what to do. At some point, the citizen's arrest can turn into a misdemeanor or false imprisonment. So the fight broke up during the misdemeanor false imprisonment, which muddied the waters for for what was. Now, I I would venture to say that as even though the trial went on and I learned that my co-defendant was very likely a sociopath, I didn't know him that well. I still think that it was a bit of a stretch to call his fight with them a murder, but. But it was it was an incredible stretch to call it for me because I didn't kill anyone. I had never been arrested. I was twenty nine when I got arrested. I I had no frame of reference for any of these things. I had the criminal intelligence of a gnat. I didn't. He put up his middle finger and said lawyer when he got interviewed, and I tried to explain everything that happened immediately, much to the chagrin of my defense attorneys. But the way the system is set up, it. it very much works against you if you try to honestly explain what happened. How long were you actually in custody? 18 years, three months. Wow. 2003, September 14th. I was released December 10, 2021. How did you end up getting out? Well, I was most, most immediately, the immediate proximate cause was the parole board. I was granted parole in 2019. Governor, the governor reversed Governor Newsom. And sent it back to the parole board. I went to the parole board again in 2021, was granted parole again. And then he called for an en banc review, which means the whole board meets again to review everything to make sure there was nothing wrong with the previous decision. And all three times they found me suitable for parole and I was released. Right after I was released, my appeal went through in the federal courts. And now they're making the final determinations on the appeal about what to actually call what happened, but they have at least agreed that there was no murder. Also the felony murder bill passed in the middle of my appeal. So now they admit that my charge, second degree felony murder no longer exists. So the appellate courts are trying to figure out what that means under the law. It also creates a lot of weird questions and attorneys are often contacting me to try to find out how it is I could have a conviction for something that no longer exists. And I have to explain that the appellate court is reviewing that now. But of course, my bigger focus now is instead of battling the same questions over and over again, I've been trying to make some positive changes myself. So I started a nonprofit for people who are in some similar circumstances. I published quite a lot when I was inside. I was publishing in something called the Prison Journalism Project or PJP. I had three pieces published while I was inside, published quite a bit through Pan America and 
Columbia University. I believe Vanguard has run a couple of those stories, bits of memoir. And when did you decide to go to UCLA? Well, I wanted to go for much of my life. I was born at UCLA. In fact, after my first little media hit, I guess, if you want to call it that, was I applied to UCLA. And I, after I got in, I put a post on LinkedIn that just said, in 1974, I was born at UCLA Hospital. Last week, at the age of 48, I was accepted into UCLA. I'm living proof that it's never too late to start a second chapter. And I hashtagged second chances and UCLA without having any idea what a hashtag was. And it was maybe two and a half, three weeks later, a buddy of mine called and said, have you looked at the number of views on that post? And I said, I just found out what a post is. I don't know how to look at views on a post. He said, over a million people read that story. And I was stuck on stupid saying, why? He said, I don't know. It looks like 50 people reshared it. So within a couple of weeks after that, the editor of UCLA Magazine called and asked if I would be willing to have them run a feature on it. They were doing a story called This Magic Moments feature myself and seven other students to talk about the moment they got in to UCLA and what that was like. And he said he was going to have it ghostwritten and one of the student journalists was going to write the story. And I was trying to get my mind around the idea of a 19 or 20 year old journalism student writing about waxing reflective from their forties about the time they fought the death penalty. And I was having a hard time getting my brain around it. So I offered to write it and he said, no, no, it has to be a journalist. And I said, okay. But he also gave us the option of sending notes for clarity's sake. So my notes were a 320 word article and I just sent it to him complete. And he called me a couple of days later and says, all right, smart Alec, I'm not touching it. I'm going to leave it as is. And so to my knowledge, I'm the only one of the eight students featured in that this magic moment who actually wrote their own story. Interesting. So since you brought it up, uh, what is it like to uh, face the death penalty? It, that is a very surreal experience, especially when I first got the paperwork. I was with my attorney, Sean Kennedy, who was the federal public defender for 10 years and is now the executive director at Loyola Law School. But Sean is drier than an Amish church service. He's just got this very dry, solemn vibe to him. And so when he first handed me the paper, I looked down and read aloud to myself, United States government versus Benjamin Franson. And then with my best attempt at a Monty Python accident said, it hardly seems fair, does it? Nothing from this guy, just staring straight ahead. I said, well, I have to laugh or I'll cry because it just seems so crazy. But they were seeking the death penalty. My mother was writing a memoir about the story called Some Mother's Darling. And her chapters about that exact piece ended up winning her the Penn Emerging Voices Fellowship in 2005. She got an agent for the memoir. I've since been completing her memoir while at UCLA. But a line she wrote that stands out about your question is, 
He said, I was certain of only two things. My son would never murder anyone and my country wanted to kill my child. It about sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I'm happy to say that, that after I got here, I was able to get into a one-on-one course with UCLA's hotshot memoirist, Justin Torres, whose first book, We the Animals, was recently made into a movie. Uh, his new book, Blackouts, is already on the bestseller list. And I worked with him one-on-one to write that story. Very, very helpful. They call that an English 199, an independent study course. So UCLA has been very supportive of me trying to document and convert my story into something other people could, at the very least, be somewhat inspired by. So what was it like? I mean, you've been in for 18 years uh, for, you know, at best trumped up charges. Uh, You know, what was it like when you finally got out? It was pretty surreal. I met someone inside. His name is Casey Jensen. And he and I used to talk entrepreneurial dreams, walk around the yard and making business plans and he wanted to start a chain of sober living homes. And once he made enough money from that, he wanted to start a multimedia center that had podcasts and would film music videos and reality shows and such. He was released in 2012. When I got out in 2021, he had 25 sober living homes and his studio in Pasadena, the world famous coin Academy already had nine different podcasts, a reality show and a lot of sound engineers. So I was on his podcast called The Boy Macca Show, just talking about how we met and a little of my story. So I had only been out for two days at that point. And that shortly thereafter is when the LinkedIn post happened. So he called me and said, hey, I'm so sick of answering emails about your story. I'm just going to give your own show. So I went down to the studio and I guess I was expecting some kind of basement setup, but it's a two-story studio with a 30-foot high-definition screen and the, the work. So I said, well, what kind of show is it? He said, it's like a podcast. And I said, oh, cool. What's a podcast? And he started laughing. He said, well, you might be the first guy on planet Earth to have a studio give them their own show and not know what the hell the show is, but never mind. You'll figure it out on the fly like you've been figuring out everything else. So he put me up in one of his decommissioned homes because he hadn't put anyone in it yet. So I went from living with seven other people in a little tiny cell to living in a five bedroom house by myself. And I started writing with the podcast. So I had only been out for a week and I had my own show and was living in a big house. It was in South Central, but it was still a big house. And I had a lot of support. My dad's in Ventura. He's still alive and he came down to visit me. Uh, the podcast has had some measure of success. So I started meeting a lot of people in social justice circles. I started getting into some of the college programs like Underground Scholars, Project Rebound at the Cal State Schools, having some of those people on my show. I had some attorneys and various paroled lifers discussing what's been happening with them and more recently in the last season, I've started including musical guests, the people who sing about some of those same social justice issues we talk about in the Vanguard. But I don't think my story is typical when it comes to 
coming out into a parole life because I had a place to live for free. I went to, and then I, I moved from there to UCLA. Even now I'm living in a UCLA apartment on Gailey. So it's a lot of work because I'm going to school full time while doing these other things. I started a nonprofit called benfreeproject.org that we are seeking to create education through music and poetry and pretty exciting stuff, but it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's definitely not the typical story you hear from somebody. Uh, even people that land on their feet, I think your story is pretty unique. I um, The more recent thing, there was a Daily Bruin article about this, but um, I was approached. While in prison, I was commissioned to write a screenplay. I had written a screenplay while I was in the county jail and s- sent it out to a bunch of different places. And finally, one studio, a small studio, wanted to option it. So they ended up getting an attachment agreement for their producer, who was also their CEO, a guy named Peiwan Shao. Well, this is kind of an interesting UCLA tie-in, but Shao Yi is a man who's in China who was considered the father of modern wuxia novels. And he has 60 published titles in China, dozens of bestsellers. And he passed away a few years ago, but before he did, he made his son, Peiwan, promise to find a way to bring his stories to the West. He also donated his father's entire library. So UCLA now has the Xiaoyi library with all of these Wuxia novels and things as a part of it. And Taiwan started Immortal Studios, which is the first interconnected series of martial arts fantasy comics. And they're now have about seven titles all mapped out. There's only one person who's ever been the editor-in-chief for both Marvel and DC. It's a man named Bob Harris, and he left DC to go to Immortal last year. And a few months ago, Peiwan approached me and asked me if I would be willing to write the next graphic novel series for Immortal Studios with the first Caucasian character. And he wanted me to base that character on my own backstory where this character finds his awakening as a hero in the dark space of prison and then him coming out into the world and seeing all the things that have changed. So a unique thing is I wrote to Penn America and the Vera Institute of Justice and Columbia's Exchange and a lot of these other restorative justice functions. And you yourself will probably get a say, I'm going to let each person describe what one or two issues might be that they would like a character to have to tackle in the series. So in July, I was announced as the next creator for Immortal Studios. That's immortal-studios.com if you want to see the artwork. And I was on the writer's panel for my first professional writer's panel in July at San Diego Comic-Con. And I've had quite a few podcast interviews and things to talk about what that comic is going to be like. So I'm just curious, what would you say your issue that you dealt with while incarcerated was? While incarcerated? Yeah. I think it was perception was a big part of it. Um, I decided, I, I changed, I did change in there, even though I didn't do what they said, I'm still not proud of the person I was at the time. Now that is a coincidence, but. That is to say that I do believe sometimes that there's a grander design for things 
And I was going to nightclubs and I was very flighty and kind of directionless. I didn't always keep my word when I gave it. So I decided when I got inside that if nothing else, I was going to become someone who did what he said he was going to do. I just started there. That seems like something simple. My mother made me promise that every day I would read one chapter in the Bible and say one prayer. Well, because I'd given my word, I did this every day, but it was like a chore, like doing the dishes or laundry or something. But sometime throughout that period, I started to find some more peace and I came to my own spiritual awakening, if you want to call it that. And I decided I wanted to, I did have control of who I was. I couldn't control where I was. I didn't have a key, but I could control who I was going to become tomorrow. So I dealt with that. And in that process, I grew up in martial arts studios. I was in the Marine Corps. And my attorney said, look, your appeals look promising, but you cannot get into any kind of fight the entire time that you're here at all, ever. So anytime somebody gets in your face and has something to prove or sticking a finger in your face, I want you to picture your mom, your dad, your loved ones, all looking at you through this stupid little visiting room glass window and tell me if that person is worth it. And I used that technique throughout the years and I never got into one fight the whole time. But I had to create sort of a perception to get people to leave me alone. But I really didn't want to get into any kind of fight. I was doing push-ups on my fingertips and stuff sometimes just to kind of give people the perception that they wouldn't want to fight with me. But the reality was I didn't want to fight with anyone at all. So that was probably the, the fine line I had to walk while I was inside, not being a victim while also not getting into any fights. That was very difficult. Yeah, very uh, interesting because, yeah, they look at the C files uh, when they make, you know, parole and other determinations. And so when they see people uh, who have gotten into trouble, um, you know, it comes back to bite you. I'm happy to say I actually had... Zero write-ups and even zero warnings for the entire 18 years, which isn't easy to do. Sometimes you get one or two that are just for standing next to someone else who gets in trouble. But I, I didn't get into any kind of trouble. I had over 100 letters of support for parole, and the final one was from the warden of Valley State Prison, the prison I was in, recommending my parole. So I am supposed to, next month, go back into the prison I paroled from as one of the articles I wrote for you, Bars Behind Bars, that's Bars with a Z, Behind Bars, are these gentlemen who started a program that is promoting literacy through rap and poetry and some creative writing and journalism. And these guys have the support of two Pulitzer Prize winners, Natalie Diaz for poetry and Mitch Jackson for literature, who have agreed to support their program along with another program that I also wrote an article about called Freedom Reads with Dwayne Betts and they install libraries in prisons and fill them up with these 500 books that Dwayne Betts decided were the most transformational in his own time in prison. So I thought maybe when I got out I would want to have nothing to do with it but as it turns out I'm working in the space now trying to help other people who have gone through what I went through. You really have a remarkable story and thank you for sharing just a small snippet of that. Thank you.
This has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Benjamin Franson. He went from wrongly incarcerated, wrongly convicted, facing the death penalty, to now a student at UCLA and uh, helping other people that are similarly situated. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.